Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, America. Welcome to the program. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. How you doing, Cliff? Ethel? Doing good, Sam. Wonderful. Right. Welcome you. back. And joining us also is our special contributor, Lamont Banks. How you doing, Lamont? Uh, pretty good. All right. We've got a good show tonight. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Timothy Cole case. Uh, and I don't know, you know if our listeners, some folks may be familiar with that, some may not. Uh, and that's a case that's in Texas where this young man was convicted uh, of rape. And I think what he was sentenced to something like 25 years in mm-hmm. prison. Yeah. And uh, he was innocent, ended up dying while in prison. But his family continued to fight for his uh, exoneration. Yes. And so that's one of the angles that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, to continue to fight. And that justice must be sought even uh, un- or justice must be sought until it's served. That's right. You know, and so that was one of the things that what I think it was like two years after after his death mm-hmm. uh, that his family uh, finally uh, judge or, or I guess Governor Perry in right, Texas right, right. Uh, declared the uh, exoneration uh, through the hands of uh, Judge Baird. And we're going to have Judge Baird on a little bit later. And then we're also going to have uh, some family members of Timothy Cole. So, uh, folks, please stick around and listen on that. It's a very touching story and so we're going to dig a little bit into that and we're also going to talk about how uh, exonerees uh, basically uh, don't get dealt a a decent hand when it comes to restitution i mean you know number one Mm -hmm. they've already been wrongly convicted wrongly incarcerated and then when they get out a lot of times they have to fight to get any type of restitution in order to uh you know try and get their life back together and they have to you know they have to fight and most times pay to get their actual exoneration to actually get their records expunged. Records expunged, and, yeah. And you know, if you have uh, if you have somebody that um, that is was wrongfully convicted and gets out, and they and you know was on some type of sex charge, then they're they have to register Reg- as a as a sex offender. Yeah. And you're sitting there as a sex offender. You're still labeled as a felon. Yep. You you don't and you know, of course you know they don't give you any compensation. They don't give you a place to stay, and you're just basically, you know, roaming and 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 waiting, waiting mm-hmm. for your name to get cleared. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're basically being subjected to even more injustice That's through the system, true. basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, as a form of a disclaimer, just want to always remind our listeners that we are not attorneys, and a just cause coast to coast does not provide legal advice. So please contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by the callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. But we want to say thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. Our phone number, if listeners would like to call in and uh, make a comment or have a question, is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. Over the last couple of weeks or so, uh, gosh, we've had callers, and we can't even get them all in because of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And we're going to touch a little bit on, on what's in the news uh, again with regard to the Michael Brown uh, case and some of the things that have come out on that as well. Mm-hmm. But before we go there, uh, we always want to remind folks that 
you know, one of the main uh, subjects that we talk about on a Just Cause Coast to Coast is the IRP-6 case. And the IRP-6 are Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Supolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. And uh, their case is a case of six IT professionals who uh, they started IRP Solutions Corporation back in 2003. In 2005, the company was raided under the auspice of uh, wrongdoing, and basically it was a vindictive uh, um, raid that occurred. And all the things that transpired in this case just point to uh, judicial injustice and some of the things that we have to bring attention to, and we will continue to bring attention to it until uh, the IRP-6 are exonerated. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, in the case is that, you know, the case went to trial in 2011, mm -hmm. and uh, Judge Christine Arguello violated their Fifth Amendment right. Yeah. And the transcript that substantiates that has been withheld ever since the trial, even to this point, exactly. having gone through uh, motions to request the, the transcript. The guys during trial requested the transcript. Attorneys have re uh, requested the transcript mm -hmm. as a part of the appeal uh, the transcript was requested mm -hmm. through a civil lawsuit. The transcript was requested, oh, yes. uh, and it has that's and that's a key. And how is it that every other part of the transcript is available mm -hmm. except this one piece? And uh, Judge Arguello is refusing to to turn it over. And uh, and but we know that that is is uh, part of the problem here. We have a petition out there on Change.org where we're asking folks to go out and sign the petition uh, and do a search on IRP-6. We're also reaching out to the Department of Justice, and uh, we're doing that uh, repeatedly. So, Ethel, let's share the phone number uh, as far as how people can help on that. Oh, absolutely. We're asking people to um, please t pick up the phone and call Attorney General Eric Holder's office. Call him at 202-514-2003 and 2005 and ask him to investigate where this over 200 pages of missing trial transcript is in the case of the IRP-6. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> but, you know, on this, uh, we always invite folks to go out to uh, the website for the IRP-6, and we got people all over the world that are looking at this thing. I mean, you know, we see where we get web hits off of uh, press releases that we put out. Folks can go out to prweb.com or they can go to uh, www.a-justcause.com and go to our media page and view the various uh, press releases that we've put out. Right. It is, it, it'll, it'll, you know, if you have any hair, to make your hair stand up on your head. Oh, <laughs> because absolutely. when you start to put all the pieces together, you will see that there's something wrong. Cliff and I were uh, interviewed yesterday uh, by a journalist, and he, he went right to, he cut right to the chase. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, after his review of a lot of things uh, related to this case, uh, he asked us a question, does this go beyond just your normal, um, you know, prosecution? Mm -hmm. Right. And we all know the answer to that. I Absolutely. mean, Cliff and I had to go all the way back uh, to the beginning of this case. And, and Cliff, I mean, let's share with our listening audience some of the things. And before you go there, folks can actually uh, get information on the case by going to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org, and you can see all types of records related to this case. But Cliff, as we were talking to this journalist yesterday, mm -hmm. the thought came to mind, you know, that, you know, sometimes people need to hear this kind of thing to see that, yeah, right from the beginning, yeah, there was a lot of messed up stuff going on. Yeah, and, and when we were talking to this journalist, the first thing he said is like, you know, 
this obviously wasn't a crime. He's like, he's like, when I look at this, you know, uh, there's some guys who, who hadn't paid their, their bills. And, you know, that's why he immediately went to the point that there had to be something else besides, um, you know, some debt. And, and the something else is, is this conspiracy by the federal government. It's like, why are you going after this small business? I mean, you look at starting at the search warrant that the, the, the special agent in charge of the FBI that was in charge of this case, John Smith, he comes up with a search warrant saying that it's a purported, uh, the company is purportedly producing software. And, you know, for the layperson out there who, um, you know, may not know what that means, that just means that, hey, this is a front company. They're pretending like they're making software. But his, his thing was that, well, basically what they're really doing is trying to swindle these, these uh, staffing companies. And Judge, uh, retired Judge H. Lee Sarakin, in his articles in the Huffington Post about this case, he lays it out. He asks the questions like, why would, why would the executives of a company, first off, put their name on the line to say they're personal guarantors for the money that was, uh, that was the bills that were being accrued from these staffing companies? And then why would they build a product if all they were trying to do is get money from the staffing companies, but none of the money came to them? So it's like, so we're just basically – we're scamming staffing companies to try to give people jobs. Is that what's going on? And and he lays it out. He's like, unless, you know, where where was the benefit to them until unless they sell the product, make some money, and then in that event you pay off your your debtors and go on with your profit and go on with your business. So talking to this journalist yesterday, he he got it right off the bat. He's like, there's got to be something else. There's got to be somebody that didn't want uh you know IRP solutions to sell the software there has to be somebody that wanted to basically shut them down yeah, and absolutely. shut them up by putting them in federal prison and and one of the statements that i made to him is that hey we aren't conspiracy theorists we don't go around making up conjecture or you know just throwing our opinion out there we follow the facts we look at the evidence and when we look at the evidence in this case it's like well yeah the federal government came and wanted to shut this this uh business down and so we have to look at it that, yeah, there was some type of conspiracy by the federal government. First off, the FBI comes in with a search warrant saying that, that the company doesn't have a product when they already knew that they did. Mm-hmm. They had federal office, uh, retired federal uh, employees that were working inside of IRP Solutions as subject matter experts. Then you have the prosecutor, uh, Matthew Kirsch, who's up at the uh, Denver U.S. Attorney's Office. You call one grand jury. And that grand jury yep. says, hey, you know, we don't see anything wrong here. This is debt. Right. This, these people occurred, incurred debt when they were in business with these staffing companies. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to give you an indictment because if you prosecute them for debt, then you'd be able to do the same thing to us when right. most people in America have, uh, have debt at some time or another. He impaneled the second grand jury when that one wouldn't give him an indictment. So you say, why would he go after this company, why would he go after two grand juries? It makes absolutely no sense That's unless right. there was some type of ulterior motive. And then you also have, you know, the the person who brought all this this forward. You have this Greg Goldberg, who was a attorney, a partner up at Holland and Hart Law Firm. Judge Arguello, I mean, uh, not Judge Arguello, but retired Judge Sarakin says that in in his review of all the evidence that he got is that he cannot find who Greg Goldberg was representing in the Absolutely case. Absolutely not. And so, so in that event, that is basically 
that a private attorney is interfering with a federal yeah. uh, a federal investigation. That is against the law. And then to find out that Judge Arguello, who presided over the case, used to be a partner at Holland and Hart and worked with Greg Goldberg. So you have all these connections, this whole web of, you know, friends with favors or whatever it is. And they say that the IRP6 are the ones who committed conspiracy. I say the conspiracy is on the government side, that they That's went it. about to ensure that these men were uh, were convicted and, and prosecuted and persecuted for being a small business that had to answer to uh, a consolidated law enforcement software platform that the other big businesses couldn't get. And, you know, they, they shut them up. And, and Cliff, you got to go to the point also where the different references to debt. I mean, right. even the FBI agent, uh, John Smith, made reference to debt several times. Mm -hmm. uh, the FBI, uh, prior to, you know, this thing going to trial and, and so forth, in response to one of the companies that IRP owed, That's right. responded with a letter saying this is a civil matter. Mm -hmm. Handle it through civil court. Mm -hmm. uh, you got the situation of, of uh, and, and this one, you know, as we talked about this, where uh, even during trial, how is it that Judge Arguello did not execute her office, uh, the position of her, you know, being a judge in ensuring that witnesses showed up at trial. Right. I mean, you had uh, the prosecution knew more about witnesses who were supposed to appear on behalf of IRP. Right. And I say on behalf of, they, they were witnesses that IRP 6 were going to call. Mm -hmm. And uh, Matthew Kirsch answered as to what their status was. Exactly. And, and, and exactly. one of them was uh, Agent Moen, who was the agent who was called as, uh, in that second grand jury mm -hmm. uh, where they got the indictment. Well, when it came time for Moen to appear at trial, mm -hmm. uh, he's off hunting somewhere. And, and Kirsch explains all of this. And then also when process servers, uh, as far as serving the, the subpoena to, to Moen, uh, you had other agents at Moen's home who basically confronted uh, the, 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 uh, the servers mm -hmm. and saying that, oh, he will not be uh, appearing before right. before before uh, in this in this case. Yeah, he's not going to appear as a witness. That's amazing. And, and that was re that was reported to right. To that the was judge. reported to yeah. the judge. And then also, what you find right after that is that Matthew Kirsch, the prosecutor, said, oh, I've been in touch with this witness, and he's off on a hunting trip. He's yeah. not available. Why is the prosecutor in touch with the defense's witness? If if that was you or me, mm -hmm. that would be called witness tampering, Absolutely. and we would be up under federal charges. Well, but the judge allows mm -hmm. him to do this and never says anything, exactly. nothing to him that says, hey, you shouldn't have been in touch with their witness. It, it, all of these things that happen, it's like, what what is going on but, in this trial? But Cliff, the fact that she didn't do anything to try and help get any of the witnesses there for, for the pro se defendants as well. well. So you know she was not going to try and you know say anything as to what the prosecutor has done as far as the witnesses go. Well, and, and just to the flip side of that, she jumped all over the IRP-6 Absolutely. for not having witnesses there. That's right. right. And, and so you are a defendant in a case, and you are saying, Judge, and well, first of all, let's go back and say how the uh, prosecution in their case, you know, a week and a half to two weeks early. Right, right. And so whose fault is that? That's not the IRP-6 fault. Exactly. And so the IRP-6 are telling Judge Arguello, it's like, okay, we are doing everything we can to get our witnesses here. We have witnesses that are coming from out of town, mm -hmm. and, and then those that are local, we're trying to track them down and so forth. And I don't know how many times she actually says, well, you better get them here, exactly. or I'm going to shut your case down. Instead of saying, okay, 
what can I do to help exactly. get your witnesses here? Which is my job. Exactly. Let me issue a bench warrant. If someone is, is playing games with my courtroom. Exactly. But she didn't go there. She didn't, she didn't say if someone's playing games and, 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 uh, and messing with my court, you know, I'm going to go after but, them. But you, you know, you she don't pretty say, much said, yeah. you know, IRP6. You get your people here. Exactly. It's almost like, like these guys who are wasting her time and wasting the court's time, you know, and, and, and stuff. And that's, that's totally ridiculous. Absolutely. You've got these six men standing here fighting for their lives, and, and you make it sound like, well, you're just here wasting, their, wasting our time? And, and, and that's, it's that type of thing that people need to recognize. When you start looking at each, each piece of this case by itself mm-hmm. is an atrocity. Yeah. When you put it all together... Then it's a then it's a horror story. Oh, oh! I and mean, that's it, exactly what it is. Sam. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes no sense. And so, again, we want to you know ask folks to go out to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org, and you can see all the information that you want to see about this. You know, one of the things too uh, is that's in the news mm-hmm. is you know the uh, the fear yeah. that's in that's uh, going across the land right now with regard to terrorist activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're coming up on the anniversary of nine eleven. Yes. And uh, ISIS uh, exactly. is is like in the news everywhere. Yeah. And then you have to go back and look at you know the different things that have been reported on with regard to this, and uh, and how you know the the types of tools that could be in place to help track this type of activity uh, is right. not in place. That's right. And so um, and, and and so that's where you know you got. Um, the FBI virtual case file. And we've talked about this before, Cliff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got virtual case file that failed. Yep. You got Sentinel Project that failed. Right. Uh, you got the bipartisan uh, policy center that just came out with the, the, the anniversary, the 9/11 anniversary report right. card, if you will, and saying that you know uh, we're no safer today than we were um, than we were right and, uh, uh, back uh, on September 10th. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it's uh it's sad and you know on so many different levels because you have these games being played with uh with these six men's lives and and their families as well and you also have the game being played with national security of of our country I mean when you have the software that you say hey this can be a great help to the entire Department of Homeland Security and all its umbrella company uh. Agencies, all the agencies that are under Homeland Security, that this can bring them together, help them collaborate, share information, and instead, your what you take as your goal is say instead of helping the country, we're going to shut these men up and, and uh, ensure that they uh, that their company is closed down and and that the software isn't isn't uh, isn't seen by DHS. Yep. Let's take a quick break. Our phone number three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. This is a just cause, coast to coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us and the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less 
and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Center for Victims of Crime can help. Let us be your resource, your support, your guide to rebuilding your life and restoring hope. Yes, you have the ability to recover. Take the first step. Call 1-800-FYI-CALL or visit us at www.ncvc.org. the voices that prisoners in solitary confinement hear every day. Out of Arizona's total of 2,076 prisoners held in solitary, 30% are taking prescription medication to deal with mental illnesses, and 11% have diagnosed schizophrenia. Experts report that the extreme and prolonged isolation exasperates pre-existing conditions and appears to even cause mental illness in prisoners who were not previously ill. While prisoners deserve punishment, Arizona can do better. We need to change the solitary confinement rules. Unlike any other states, Arizona prisoners are held in 8 by 10 cells for at least 23 hours a day with no windows and virtually no human interaction. Perhaps the best way to fix solitary confinement so it strikes a balance between punishment and humanity is to decrease the size of solitary units. Colorado, Texas, Mississippi, and Illinois have decreased the size of their units, only admitting prisoners who need the rehabilitating experience. And saved over $6 million without compromising prison safety. A study produced in Colorado reported that after decreasing the number of solitary units, prisoners experienced an improvement in overall mental health of the confined inmate population. How can we do this? We need to reach out to Director of Corrections Charles L. Ryan, asking him to decrease the number of solitary units. Solitary confinement needs to remain a place for punishment and behavior change, but it can also be a place of innovation and rebuilding. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez, also being joined by our special contributor, uh, Lamont Banks. Our phone number this evening, 347-838-8976, 347 
888-528-8976. Cliff, let's jump back to something that we were talking about just before that uh, break with regard to the IRP6 case and how Judge Arguello, you know, violated the Fifth Amendment right. And, you know, uh, and we talked about how the prosecution ended their case a week and a half to two weeks early. Right. And Judge Arguello had a sidebar conference uh, where she was, you know, uh, uh, basically jumping all over the guys for not having witnesses there. And then she forced them to take the stand. And she said that either you take the stand or I'm going to rest your case for you. Yes. Now, we talked about uh, the Fifth Amendment violation and the transcript that will substantiate that is missing. But mm-hmm. we got to tie it back to, uh, you know, how do we know that? Right. And see, what we have to go back to is that right after this sidebar happened, you know, obviously the guys are, like, you know, IRP6 are like, hey, she's going to force one of us to take the stand. Um, this is what happened. We need to get that on the record because it looks like, you know, she's being biased toward us. Absolutely. So they request that as soon as they come back from lunch. Hey, we want that sidebar. We want the transcript. We want to have that in our hands. In its entirety. Right, in its entirety. We want that in our hands so when it comes time uh, to bring up this issue that we can speak to it that you violated our Fifth Amendment. Right, well, she... She asked the court reporter, well, you know, how many pages are still, aren't, still are not available? And the court reporter says over 200 pages. So we're not just making up that, oh, we think there's 200 pages that are missing. No, this is what the conversation between the court reporter and Judge Arguello, the court reporter says there's over 200, 200 pages, pages that are not available. And the, the, the atrocity, well, part of the atrocity is that the judge comes back and says, okay, well, that's going to cho- cost uh, you as a defendant such and such amount of money, and I don't see any reason that you need it right now. Well, it's not your position to find out what reason that, that you see fit that the defendants want it. We want it. We have a right to it. So why not deliver it to us? So she refused them at that point. And she said, I'm not going right. to make she it said, available. I'm, I'm not, not going I'm to not expedite the request. the request. Exactly. And they made several requests after that. Hey, we need to go back to this 200 pages. Where is it? It's still not available. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to pay for it. Okay, we'll pay for it. Where is it? And then after that, the court reporter comes up with all these excuses. Exactly. When, the, when the appellate attorney you know, went in and said, hey, I need to see these 200 pages that, that you and the judge were talking about, they gave the, they gave the attorney three different uh, reasons. First, they said, well, uh, it, it's been destroyed. Well, mm-hmm. you know, they had to back up off that one because you, these are supposed to be records that are kept in the clerk's office for up to 10 years. Exactly. Then, well, it's not available. It's up to my discretion yeah. to deliver it. Well, that's a lie, too, because the public can, can see these records, and they're available for anybody to make a copy of them if you want to pay for them. Mm-hmm. Then they come back, well, it's going to cost you so much and so much money. Well, then when they were paid for by a just cause to get to the bottom of this issue of what happened at this sidebar, mm-hmm. the sidebar still was not in there. Exactly. I mean, some of, some of that day's yeah. goings-on and yep. happenings mm-hmm. are in the transcript, right. but this entire sidebar is nowhere to be found. And the the thing is, that is the only portion of the transcript that is missing. It's like, so you, you're t- these 200 pages that the judge and the court reporter were talking about, Judge Arguello and court reporter Darlene Martinez mm-hmm. were talking about, it's like within that is a sidebar where she violated the Fifth Amendment right. That is nowhere to be found in the transcript. And I went, what was it, about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I went up to the clerk's office in Denver, Colorado, and said, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, hopefully they've got their act together. 
with this sidebar issue. I get up there, and the first thing they do when I ask them about the case, all I did was give them the case number, said, I need this day, uh, you know, October 11th, 2011, from this case number. What do they do? They come down with a disc and says, here's the sidebar. I said, I didn't ask you anything about a sidebar. I asked you for the whole day. And then they try to backtrack. Oh, oh wait, let's, let us go back upstairs and get it. So they go back upstairs and get it, and I'm looking at it there uh, on the computer, and it, you see each day is called out. There's a, there's, a, there's a PDF of each day of the trial. Mm-hmm. But on the 11th, you have the full day, and then you also have an additional PDF that says sidebar. I'm like, and I, I asked the guy there, I said, why is this file separate mm-hmm. from the entire day? Oh, I don't, and, and he, he's backtracking. He's new, oh, so, but they filled they him filled in, him and, he, and he's backtracking. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have anything to do with that. All I did was brought you what they gave me. And so you look at it and you say, okay, you have this separate piece that's pulled out that looks like it was added mm-hmm. by the court reporter that's like, okay, here's your sidebar since you guys keep making us think about it. So when you still look at it, you're like, okay, there's still something wrong here well, with the transcript. Exactly. And the thing is, like you said, Cliff, is like, you know, 200 pages, and, and we, it's our understanding that, you know, that could, that could possibly account for an entire right. day. Exactly. But what happens is that Judge Arguello and, and, uh, um, Darlene Martinez, right. you know, they, they, they say, well, no, we provided that day. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, we right. provided the transcript for that uh, day. Yeah. But then, but this piece, like yeah. you right. said, that, that sidebar conference, mm-hmm. yeah, you can extract that out yeah. of there. Right. And that is the critical part. And then yeah, that's exactly so. That is exactly, you know, when we make the comments, hey, let's, let's query Eric yeah. Holder, let's query DOJ, yeah. let's query the, uh, the Office of the Administration of the Court, exactly. let's query these places for these 200 pages. That's why we're going after the exactly. 200 pages, exactly. not just to say, okay, I mean, it would be, it would be a miscarriage of justice mm-hmm. if there was just 200 pages of arbitrary transcript right, that were right. missing. But when you have a violation of six defendants' uh, constitutional, constitutional rights, right. that is the meat of that 200 pages. I, that is why we're saying deliver that yeah. because it will show exactly what the judge what did. It shows exactly. the violation. That's why we want it. And that's why we're asking everybody to go out to change.org, do a search on the IRP6, and sign the petition that's asking um, Attorney General Eric Holder, hey, do an investigation. Where is this transcript that shows that Judge Arguello violated these defendants' Fifth Amendment right? If she did it to them, she can do it to you, and also it sets precedence for any other judge mm-hmm. to be able to do this and not be held accountable. Exactly. And what, and I was, no, I was ahead. just thinking, you know, lo- looking at um, what Darlene Martinez has already said and the excuses that she made about not having the transcript, the transcript not being available, it's been destroyed and all these other things. And right. then you have the judge who, is saying, who, who says that, well, um, uh, uh, the, maybe her headphones fell off or, or, or something like that. And then you have the uh, appellate attorney who's talking to the to uh, uh, Darlene Martinez, the, the court reporter, and just happened to mention something to her about her uh, headset. And she tells the, the appellate attorney that she doesn't even wear a headset. So what did the judge come up with this? You don't tell me that this Darlene Martinez just started being a, a, a court reporter in her courtroom that week or that day. Right. And she does not know that this woman does not wear heads, a headset. Right. And that, that's what compounds the whole matter is the fact that when you're talking about uh, the court reporter's uh, uh, headphones or, or earplugs fell out. And, mm-hmm. then, and then later she says, well, I don't wear earplugs. Exactly. And, 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 and then 
you know, during the course of, of motions that were filed, during the course of the civil uh, lawsuit that was filed, right, right. it came out that, you know, Judge Arguello basically says that, well, I don't remember what I said. And then, yeah. you know, Judge Arbrook Jackson, he, he in his opinion, he said that, you know, obviously something was said exactly. that uh, that was not recorded. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so and, and then going back to what Cliff was saying, even like uh, Judge H. Lee Serkin, right. in his four part series that he wrote out there on Huffington Post. Yeah. He said, you know, in, in the absence of critical parts of a transcript, mm-hmm. you have to uh, reverse or, or, or remand. Exactly. Right. And exactly. I mean, when you, you look at the the, um, you know, the proceedings in the court. And there was a there was a, there was more than one sidebar. Right. And right. on on this day, there was like two sidebars. May have been mm-hmm, three. Mm-hmm. The the first sidebar is what they want to deliver to us. Say, oh, here it is. Mm-hmm. Here here's the sidebar. It's like that's not the one that we're talking Absolutely. about. What about the sidebar where this whole conversation is going on? Mm-hmm. Where this this whole exchange between the defendants and the judge is going on? Where you told them that one of them would have to take the stand. Exactly. Where is that sidebar? See, a lot of times, you know, people ask, well, are, are all sidebars, you know, sometimes the court reporter doesn't record the sidebars. Mm-hmm. Well, this, record, this court reporter recorded everything during this case. Yeah. And every sidebar from each day that happened is there. This is the only one that is missing. The only, the only portion of this transcript that is missing mm-hmm. is this 200 pages that encompass this sidebar uh, yeah. that where she violated the Fifth Amendment. Exactly. Right. And the court reporter's access that she must record everything, everything. verbatim. Exactly. Verbatim. As it happens Absolutely. in the Absolutely. She's a recorded. She's to deliver that to the clerk's office uh, no later than 90 days after the court proceedings. And those are to stay in the clerk's office for no, no less, less than, than 10, 10 years. years. And Absolutely. that was another thing that I got into into it with the clerk when we went up there. And, you know, one of them started, well, we don't keep that stuff. I said, you are mistaken because based on the court reporters act, all this stuff needs to be in here. And they, you know, they corrected him uh, after a few minutes of me and him going back oh, and forth. I'm sure. But, um, you know, that that's why. We say that it's important, you know, that for for the general public to understand what's going on, exactly. to be knowledgeable knowledgeable about court proceedings, because this could happen to you, and that's why, you know, we we as a Just Cause and AJC Radio Coast to Coast, that's why we give you the information that you need. So if somebody tells you, well, the the court doesn't have that, they do have that. Know exactly what your rights are as a citizen when you go up uh, looking for these type of things. Absolutely, and, and that's news. Oh, that's what politics. All right, uh, we're going to go on and shift gears real quick, and uh, uh, just before uh, we go to another break here in a, in a few minutes, uh, we're going to be joined by Judge uh, Charles Baird, and Judge Baird uh, was involved in the Timothy Cole case. And, uh, and before we bring Judge Baird on, I just want to remind our listeners again that our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. Go out to freetheirp6.org, and we're going to continue talking about that, uh, you know, in, in the weeks to come because of the fact that there's so much here mm-hmm. that, that folks just, I mean, they just can't believe it. Exactly. And so these are the kind of things that we will continue to uh, bring forward. So let's go to Judge Barrett uh, and bring him on. Judge Barrett, are you there, sir? I am indeed. Good evening. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing just great. How are y'all? 
Uh, we're really doing good. great. Thank you. Good to have you. You're not from Texas good. at all, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, Judge Baird, uh, thanks for joining us this evening. We're going to be talking about uh, the Timothy Cole case and, uh, and, and how all the things transpired there. So share with our listening audience uh, how you got involved in that case. You know, how did it end up being on your docket and, and, uh, and, and, and how things transpired in that case? Okay. Uh, do y'all, you want me to give you a little history about the Tim Cole case itself before it got to me? Uh, yes, sir, if you, if you would. Okay. All right. Now, Tim Cole was a young man from Fort Worth, Texas, uh, who had been in the military, and he decided to go to um, Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, far west Texas, and uh, was a student there and was enrolled there while uh, an Af- he was African-American, Tim Cole was, and another African-American male was committing a number of sexual assaults against white females on the Texas Tech campus. And uh, strictly fortuitously, uh, Tim Cole was uh, identified as a possible suspect. He was placed in a, a lineup. It was a photo lineup. The photo lineup was very, very suggestive. And uh, the young lady who was uh, sexually assaulted in Tim's case, uh, following that very suggestive lineup, uh, identified Tim Cole. And then she had a live lineup, and, of course, she had already identified him once from a photograph, and now she identified him live uh, in a, what's known as a corporal lineup where they're there in person. And so she identified him, and Tim Cole protested his innocence forevermore. He said, I never, ever, ever did it. And uh, there were several uh, possibilities for DNA testing back in the day, and none of those uh, were followed through on. Nothing was ever tested. And Tim Cole maintained his innocence, and he went to trial uh, in Lubbock, Texas, which is very conservative, very uh, Anglo, very Caucasian, um, and was tried and, and convicted. And the day, the day of his trial, they offered him probation uh, to a lesser offense if he would have pleaded to that. And he said, no, I'm not going to plead anything I'm not guilty of. And so he was convicted, and he was assessed punishment at 25 years confinement in a Texas prison. And he went to prison, and uh, he Tim was an asthmatic, which can we can talk about that a little bit later how it came up to be important. But he was an asthmatic, and in Texas they put you out in the fields, either picking cotton or uh, you know uh, raising corn or whatever they have you doing. But anyway, it's very hard, strenuous labor, and it's outside. And it's a terrible place to be. And uh, as a result of his asthmatic condition, Tim had an asthmatic attack and died from a heart attack in prison. Prior to his death, he had been offered several opportunities at parole. Texas parole requires that you admit your guilt Mm -hmm. in order to receive parole, and he wouldn't do that. And so he died in prison, even though he had been uh, offered parole. It turns out that uh, there was an individual who... Uh, had been convicted of rape, very similar type rape, uh, in Lubbock uh, shortly around the time that, that uh, Tim Cole was convicted. Right. He, for some reason, he was never implicated in the Tim Cole case or never even a suspect in the Tim Cole case. He later wrote to the authorities and said, I committed the rape that Tim Cole is in prison for. 
the authorities later did DNA testing on some evidence in the Tim Cole case and found out that, in fact, this other individual had, in fact, been responsible for the rape. Of course, all this was done after Tim Cole had died in prison. And uh, they, Tim Cole's lawyers filed uh, legal pleadings in Lubbock, Texas, which is where the conviction was obtained, and asked a judge there to uh, hear the case and to find, you know, give him a posthumous um, vindication of it and, and showing that he was innocent. And no judge in Lubbock would do that. And he was represented uh-huh. very ably. Tim Cole was represented by a guy named uh, Jeff Blackburn with the Texas Innocence Project. Jeff and I are, are friends, and Jeff came to me, and he said, what, what can I do with this case? And I said, well, why don't you file it in my court? At that time, I was the sitting district court judge in Austin, uh, the state capitol, and he filed the case over there, and we had a full-blown hearing, and, and uh, that's kind of how the case got to my court, and, and that's why I was uh, honored to preside over the Tim Cole case. So, uh, Judge Barrett, uh, why do you think there was this effort, or I, I won't say it was an effort, but it sounds like, you know, uh, why, why wouldn't anyone hear the case? I mean, if it's clear that there's DNA evidence to, uh, to clear – uh, a man who is wrongly convicted, why wouldn't a, why wouldn't uh, uh, someone go on and uh, agree to hear that? That just that 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 doesn't sound. I mean, you you want to think better of our system than that? Well, you know, you want to think better of our system than that, and that you want to uh, people like me and and others, of course, who've dedicated their lives to this system, want to think that the system works and, and does vindicate those who've been wrongfully convicted. But unfortunately, there are a lot of individuals in the criminal justice system that just flat don't see it that way. And their own personal reputation, their, their fear of admitting that they've done something wrong or been uh, incorrect or were in error, uh, those fears far outweigh the appropriate uh, conduct that's deserved and warranted in cases like that, which is to vindicate the wrongfully convicted. The judge here wasn't about, in Lubbock wasn't about to hear the case. I guess he thought that there'd be some type of political repercussions uh, there in Lubbock. You know, judges in Texas are elected. And the DA wouldn't even come forward and say, yeah, the, uh, you know, we made a mistake in my office. We prosecuted the wrong man. And, um, you know, they just didn't, flat, didn't have the integrity to step forward and say we made a mistake and we're sorry and we hope it never happens again and we'll do everything we can to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Wow, wow. Judge, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this. Uh, joining us this evening is uh, Judge Charles Baird, now in private practice. Is that correct, sir? Yes, sir. As an attorney. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit, of, uh, get your opinion on some of these other things that you just mentioned. Uh, Judge uh, Charles Baird uh, presided over the exoneration of Timothy Cole. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Our, call, our number this evening for our listeners, if you have a question or comment is 347-838-8976. 347-838-8976. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to AJC Radio. Call in at 347 347- 838-8976 and share your stories and comments about judicial injustice. Be a part of the AJC Radio Show every Tuesday and Thursday night 6 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Eastern. The number again 347-838-8976 or 
www.blogtalkradio.com and search for a just cause coast to coast. Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? A dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie. I think the hoodie is as much responsible for Trayvon Martin's death as George Zimmerman was. Do I look suspicious? Do I look suspicious? This guy looks like he's up to no good or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do that. You have to recognize that this whole stylizing yourself as a gangster, you're going to be a gangster wannabe. Well, people are going to perceive you as a menace. I am here to continue the research with white hair, white hair. To This is the Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez, also being joined by our special uh, contributor, Lamont Banks, and then our special guest this evening, uh, Judge Charles Baird, who presided over the case uh, that overturned uh, the conviction of Timothy Cole. Let's go to a quick clip before we bring the judge back on. DNA evidence has freed 33 people from Texas prisons, and the case of a Fort Worth man may break new legal ground. Fox Sports Phil Alvarado reports attorneys for the Innocence Project of Texas are trying to legally exonerate a man who died nine years ago. Tim Cole died in prison, an innocent man. His family never stopped believing it. Now that he's not here, I, I know his spirit is rejoicing somewhere because of this. I never gave up. Cole went to Texas Tech in Lubbock, left and served in the Army, and returned to Texas Tech. His life and the lives of everyone in his family changed. Cole was picked out of a photo lineup by a rape victim. He was tried and convicted in 1986. 
He'd been in prison 13 years when he died of asthma at age 39. All he ever did was encourage every one of us to take advantage of our educational opportunities and all the things that life had for us because of something that he didn't do. He didn't have that opportunity. Tim Cole never knew that Jerry Wayne Johnson had been trying to find him since 1995. Johnson was also in prison on a rape conviction. This letter from Johnson reached Cole's mother in Fort Worth. In the letter to Cole, Johnson confesses to the rape that sent Cole to prison. In May, a year after Johnson's letter, DNA evidence backed up his confession. I wished I had a stayed persistent with him and, and got a contact information and contacted him back around 95. Tim Cole's family says they have a deep sorrow that he never knew about Johnson's confession or the DNA test results while he was alive. But the family says they believe in divine justice, and they say surely he knows now. His time has come for the world to know that he did nothing to deserve what he got. He did nothing to deserve that. Phil Alvarado, Fox 4 News. Judge Baird, again, uh, welcome back to the uh, program. And, um, you know, uh, that kind of reiterated some of the things that you were talking about before the break uh, regarding this case. And the fact that there is so much evidence, there's DNA evidence, there's uh, the actual perpetrator uh, confessing to the crime. Uh, but it all, you know, came after uh, Mr. Cole uh, had passed away in prison. Now, you talked a little bit uh, before uh, the break regarding uh, you know, judges and prosecutors and, and uh, the uh, DA's office not not wanting to, to move forward on the case. Um, and I know Texas in Dallas County, you know, they are, uh, are like setting uh, a, a record, if you will, and setting the pace and setting the example for the country as far as integrity units. Um, do you think that that's something that's going to make a difference in our in our country when it comes to, you know, if it, uh, obviously you got to get the right person in office in order for something like that to work. But do you see uh, where integrity units are going to make an impact in our judicial system? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, it, it's just funny. It's, it's almost counterintuitive to me uh, that – you know, you'd have a DA uh, in Dallas with like Craig Watkins, and it's clearly obviously a major uh, area in Texas where they have had any number of convictions, and, and it, that he established an, uh, the integrity unit there, mm-hmm. and in order to review questionable convictions. And, and so you would have thought that when he said, yeah, we found, you know, five or 10 or 15 or however many they wind up finding, that, uh, Every that, that Houston and San Antonio and, and Fort Worth and other everybody else would have said, well, you know, maybe we should do that as well to ensure the integrity of our convictions. But the truth is, nobody's done that in Texas, and I don't know that it has had a far-ranging effect. And I think it goes back to the the uh, type of individuals that are perhaps uh, prosecuting in those other counties. They they simply say, I'm not going to come forward and admit that either I personally or this office has ever in its history made a mistake. Uh, I'm going to require the defendant to go out and do that. And, of course, it's very, very difficult to, to do that, uh, to prove a, a negative, so to speak, years and years and years after the fact. So I'm actually a little bit disheartened that the uh, Dallas model has not 
flourished uh, certainly across Texas, but even nationally. And, you know, that's one of the things where, you know, as we do uh, the broadcast week after week, uh, we look at the, uh, the the situation there in Dallas, and then you look at, you know, then you have to jump to, you know, Brooklyn and, mm-hmm. and you know, situations in New York mm-hmm. where they have problems there, too. And, and now they are, you know, they have integrity units that are starting up there. But it, it seems like it takes a regime change, uh, and that's what's happening. And so in Dallas, you got uh, uh, Craig Watkins, who, who launched that, and then uh, you got a new DA in, in, in New York. Uh, who has launched one, and, and, and they do zero in. It looks like they're zeroing in on uh, cases that seem to have a certain profile. And so you hope that it's going to make an, make an impact. Uh, I think we have a caller from Oregon. Is that caller still there, Cliff? Yes, we have uh, Rachel from Oregon. You wanted to make a comment? Yes. Um, I have a case that I have been battling for over two years. Uh, that concerns New York and the former Brooklyn DA, Charles Hines. Um, I was kidnapped on his order, held against my will, forced, blackmailed, coerced into taking a plea bargain, and then I was run out of New York. When I was in New York at the request of my daughter, who has mental health issues, who I don't have any idea where she is, I don't know if she's hurt, if she's being brutalized, if she's a drug addict. He called a precinct, just a random precinct, ordered me arrested, which there was no, no complaint filed by my daughter. There was no investigation, which would have uh, brought about a, a probable cause to arrest me. None of that exists. Then... Once I was successful, the system actually worked. The system doesn't really appear to seem to be broken to me. The system worked. I was successful. I got an order of protection vacated. I got a mental health hygiene warrant. I got her to a facility. Judge uh, D.A. Hines then called that facility and told the doctor to let her go and then had me kidnapped. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here. I don't need Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or any of those people to come around once my daughter's dead. I'm trying to save her life. Her dad is bipolar. We've been married for over 20 years. My child is ill. I am trying to save her life. She is in trouble. And no one seems to care. And, Rachel, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we appreciate the call. And uh, Olivia has uh, sent me a message that she is going to get with you offline, get some of the background information. And uh, we want to let you know that, you know, a just call, that's what we're here for is to check into the cases that come to us. She will get with you and get the background information so that we're able to uh, give you the time that, that, uh, that's deemed necessary uh, for you to get your story out. So thank you for the, for the uh, call and the comment, Rachel. Uh, we hear things like this all the time. Um, well, we do have uh, other callers on. We have uh, Reginald Kennard, and um, we have him on the line, and we're going to bring him into the, into the conversation. Welcome to the program, Reginald. How are we doing today? Doing well, doing well. So, uh, Reginald, you are one of the brothers to uh, Timothy Cole, that's correct? Yes. yes, Tim and I were roommates at Texas Tech when this went down. Oh, Okay. 
So uh, tell us a little bit, and, 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 uh, and we also have Judge Baird uh, still on the line, so Judge, jump in there at any point. Uh, but uh, Red, I'm sorry. Can I say something real quick? Sure, go ahead. Can I say hello to my friend Judge Barrett? Uh, Absolutely, he, uh, Reginald. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good, my friend. Um, thank you so much for that conversation you had. It just really made a Absolutely. Life. I would love it's to good to hear from you. Me. You too. How to keep it? So, 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 Reginald, uh, how, as far as, and it's obvious that there is a special bond there between you and and, and Judge Baird. So, when you, uh, when the family found that, uh, you know, Judge Baird, that the case is going before his court, and the result that came, you know, how how did that make you and the rest of your family uh, feel? You know, knowing that, okay, Tim was not there to hear it, but just to get an exoneration on behalf of your brother. Uh what what was the what was the atmosphere with the family? It was it was it was it was uh it was bittersweet because we when I'm back up a little bit. When we first got the letter, got the news uh they're gonna be doing DNA testing and all that stuff. But we always knew. And we were just worried whether they saved the evidence to prove what we already knew. And when it came down, it was it was it was like you know okay now everybody else knows because it was it was it was it was an ordeal on my family that that just near destroyed my whole family you know it, it, you know Tim was accused of a really heinous crime you know and you had people that knew Tim but you know you don't know they don't know and you had people whispering saying this and that you know but it was vindication for not just Tim but my family also. So you said that you and Tim were actually roommates in college? Exactly, yeah. Tim came, what happened was I was there already. And um, on December 31st, what had, what had, I'm going to tell you this whole story. What happened was they had, Prince had his purple ring out now, and he was in Dallas doing concerts on the 30th, 31st, and 1st. And my roommate was a really big fan of Prince. So anyway, he was there, and he was about to go back, and Tim couldn't decide whether he was going to go to Texas Southern or to Texas Tech. So I was already at Texas Tech. And he told my roommate, Quintus, I said, I'll ride back with you. And he said, I got room for you. I said, yeah, we have plenty of room. And that's how Tim got there. Okay. So now let's let's kind of look at some of the things that came as a result of this. I know uh, uh, there is legislation that's been passed uh, in the name of Tim. There is a uh, a, a statue that's going to be uh, unveiled uh, within the next month or so uh, in the name right. of Tim. So as far as legislation, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. I know there's the Timothy Cole, uh, the Tim Cole Compensation Act. And, uh, and, and so what, what's the significance of that? Well, that's, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. It's, it's a good thing, you know. Um, it's one. It's probably the best one as far as conversation in any state in the nation, which is good. But at the same time, um, I didn't. I I had the fact that you know what if it wasn't it wasn't a stipulation in it that says what what do we do if a person dies? What if we execute somebody and we come back and say if he does twelve years and he gets an amount of money, but a person does twenty years and live? I mean. I mean, you know what I'm saying? 
It's that there's no there's no provision for that also. And um, but other than that, I'm I'm happy for um, the people who are being compensated and all the help they get from it also. And I'm very close to all those guys. Uh, one thing Reginald said is is uh, well, actually everything he said, of course, is correct. But let me comp- let me follow up on one thing that he said about the the compensation act. Um, I think Texas was shamed into this, uh, and it was, that shaming was led uh, by Tim's case. The the uh, reimbursements or the compensation for individuals who'd been wrongfully convicted in Texas was just pitiful, just a, just a pittance, obviously, of what it should be when you wrongfully take somebody's freedom for for years. Right. And Texas, uh, I think they now have a across the board amount of eighty thousand dollars per year per inmate for each year that inmate is confined uh, wrongfully. And it's, it is a very good compensation uh, package. And I do think that Reginald is correct that it's, it's probably the best in the nation. Um, the, the thing is, it was ironic in Tim's case, is, is that there is no compensation for somebody who dies in prison, who dies while they, and then it's ultimately determined that they're wrongfully convicted. Um, right. That was the bitter irony in Tim's case. Of course, they, his, I may say this about the about Tim's family, for starting with his mother and, and his brother, Reginald, but just across the board, these individuals never gave up for one minute the, the absolute certainty that Tim Cole was innocent and that he was wrongfully convicted. And they didn't do this for any, any type of compensation whatsoever. They did this clearly and, and only to exonerate the name of their loved one, their brother and their son, to ensure that, that, that his reputation was restored in some fashion, albeit after his death. Right, right. And we have the, the numbers, uh, you know, for Texas. Just a little overview. And, and we understand, Judge, that you say they're good. And we will put the caveat on compared to other, uh, other states in America because... We don't think that you can put a price on uh, a person each year that a person spends in prison wrongfully, and especially uh, for the loved one who loses their, uh, you know, their family member in, in prison. So, so Texas has 80000 per year. Uh, death row exonerees get 100000 per year, plus 25000 per year spent on parole or registered as a sex offender plus lifetime monthly annuity payments, and they have a three-year dead, uh, three-year deadline for filing. So, yeah, compared to the rest of the country, that um, that's better. But we still, uh, as you say, need to go much farther. Uh, need to need to uh, first off fight to ensure that innocent people uh, do not spend time in prison. And, and the the fact that DNA is available and could have exonerated. Uh, Tim, long before his demise, is uh, is quite sad. But we are glad to hear that his name, um, you know, has been has been cleared that he has been pardoned for for uh, the crime that they claim that he had committed. So, uh, Judge Baird, uh, Reginald, we have to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to be rejoined by Judge Charles Baird and Reginald Kennard. Uh, Judge Baird presided over the case that uh, overturned the Timothy Cole conviction uh, in Texas. And Reginald Kennard is one of the brothers of uh, Timothy Cole. So we're going to uh, be rejoined by them on the other side of the break. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be right back. 
Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now, here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's a racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of America's drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white women in state prisons and federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparities in America's war on drugs are one big reason that one of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. lifetime. something you ever wanted to do as a child, be an astronaut, be a doctor, I always wanted to be a police officer. And there's a strong sense of pride in being a police officer. I'm not just out there just to stop people for the heck of it. It's just We don't want to accuse someone or charge somebody with a crime that they didn't do any more than they want to be charged with it. So uh, we take that responsibility, especially with sexual assaults, very seriously. I think my greatest fear uh, one of the greatest fears that many investigators experience is, 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 is uh, the wrong person. As police officers, one of the things that we're always very concerned about is uh, the potential that we have for putting an innocent person into jail if we do not do our job do our, our properly. And the for us, though, that we did our job, our job properly and that justice is being done. Being done. A Just Cause Coast to Coast shares compelling stories about judicial injustice. But AJC doesn't leave it there. AJC Radio presents top guests from across the country who are advocates, activists, attorneys, and judges who provide insight into the current events and the law. If you believe in what AJC is doing, we ask that you make a donation of any amount. Your kindness will be greatly appreciated. Go to www.a-justcause.com and click on the Donate button. Again, www.a-justcause.com and click on the Donate button. Please note, a Just Cause is still currently waiting on recertification by the IRS of our 501c3 status. 
So at this time, we ask that you donate based on your belief in the cause. Please consult your tax advisor for tax questions. We value you as loyal listeners and will continue to bring programming that provides education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Thank you so much for your consideration. My name is Brian Banks. In 2002, I was wrongfully convicted of a crime I did not commit. I know you hear that a lot, but in my case, it's true. The California Innocence Project is a nonprofit clinic at California Western School of Law devoted to investigating and litigating cases where innocent people may have been wrongfully convicted. My name is Justin Brooks, and I'm director of the California Innocence Project. Since 1999, we've investigated thousands of cases. Where there's strong evidence of innocence, we go to court and we free our clients. Law students and law professors work together to seek justice in these cases. Over the past 14 years, we've been able to free many innocent clients. So if you or someone you know has been falsely convicted of a crime, or if you'd like to donate to our cause, then please contact the California Innocence Project at CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. The California Innocence Project had my conviction reversed, gave me my life back, and helped me fulfill my dream of playing in the NFL. Please support the California Innocence Project and help bring home victims of an imperfect justice system. Talk, news, politics, and inspiration. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number, 347-838-8976. Joining us this evening, Judge Charles Baird, who presided over the Tim Cole case in Texas, along with uh, one of Tim's brothers, Reginald Kennard. And uh, I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, as well as a, our special contributor, Lamont Banks, and so, Lamont, during the break, I know you said that you wanted to chime in on the, uh, on the subject of the restitution and the, uh, as far as compensation for the wrongly convicted. Yes, uh, my position on it, and uh, uh, pleasure to meet you, Judge Baird. Uh, very uh, honored to share the radio with a, a gentleman that has proven to be uh, a man of integrity, and I, I salute you for what you've done in this case. It, it's really admirable to see that. Um, Thank you, Lamont. I think it's a being wrongfully convicted myself. Uh, I did six and a half to seven years here in Colorado um, for a crime I did not commit. And when I hear the uh, the restitution issue that that is brought up often uh, in Colorado, they have not eighty thousand dollars a year, but they got seventy thousand for each year that you spend. My problem with that is based upon the horrific 
things that you go through as a wrongfully convicted person. Uh, again, it is, as Cliff alluded to earlier, there is no price tag that can take away uh, what you've suffered or gone through, and not only that, what you've suffered in, in, during incarceration, but even what you suffer many times for the rest of your life mm-hmm. of being tagged as someone that was convicted, unable to get a job. I did the math on the 70000 a year here in the state of Colorado in my case, and it comes out to be $191 a day, which to me is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's a joke. Uh, my concern is that, and I believe, and I'll just say it, you know, I'll call it what it is in my opinion, is that it is a way for the system to put a cap on litigation against the wrongful, uh, uh, the wrongful convictions. Because what it does, it sends the message that, hey, we care. And I'm, I'm talking from experience here as, as, the, as the statue here in the, in the state of Colorado that the governor gets up, he signs this legislation, he says this is to, to give back to these men. Well, how do you give back maybe the mother that they lost during incarceration? How do you give that back? How do you put a price tag that my mother may have passed away or I lost an uncle or my father died or and I couldn't go to a funeral. Or I was treated horribly like an animal locked in a cage. How do you put a tag price price tag, whatever you want to call it, on something to that level? It, it is uh, repulsive to me that states take that position to a point if they were sincere about what their position was and just just call it what it is. You know what? We're going to go ahead and give you $70,000 a year uh, so we don't have to pay you a dime over. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, Lamont, I I certainly agree with you, and and quite frankly, you know, to ask your question is to answer it. There just simply is no uh, commensurate amount of uh, compensation to cover what you and these other individuals who have been exonerated have gone through. I mean, you couldn't put me in prison for eight hundred thousand dollars a year. I just, you know, I would not do it if I had my, if I had my druthers, you know. And so, uh, the, the and, and you're, I think that you're right. I think, I think it is uh, some form of absolution for the state to kind of wash their hands of the matter and say, we did everything that we could to make them whole. But the truth is that the individuals who've gone through this process and the horrors of it are never going to be made whole, and no amount of money can do that. And you know, yeah. Go ahead, Reginald. I'm going to say this. Um, I don't want people to think that, um, as uh, Judge Brett alluded to, and when I said when I brought the subject up, that my thing is this about people that die in prison. I'm sure somebody has been executed in my state that was wrongly convicted. Right. And I'm not talking about for me. I'm talking about for other people. That was my mom and my brother were all about, helping other people. My mom was a bilingual school teacher. She believed in helping people. My brother Tim was the same way, and that's that's all I was mean to say when I when I brought the subject up. Okay, because and everything I've done had nothing to do with monetary gain. I wish I had my brother, and my mother back. Thank you. Oh this yeah. Money. Oh, right. uh, right. Reginald, we get that. We yeah. get that totally. I, I think what when Lamont makes his his point. He, he's making it not not in you know he's making the point and, and Lamont you I can jump. I'm, 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 I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's saying also. Don't get me wrong because not only he didn't allude to was this. Think about if you're there for what my brother was accused of doing. You're mm-hmm. an outcast in prison. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. About, I, and, and I never told him about this story. When Tim first got arrested, I couldn't bond him out, so I went to see him the very next day. Tim's eye was bloodshot. He had already been in the fight. 
but he was still smiling. And he said, man, Reggie, I'm all right. I'm all right. Did you go to class today? But you're being ostracized now for certain crimes, and that's what I'm saying. And I, and I agree with this man on what he said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually, uh, Reginald, it actually, uh, my case was exactly, well, not on that level, but it was a uh, sexual assault case accusation. And uh, exactly. what you, and how you're tagged and how you're treated, uh, it, it's, it, it takes the level of, of horror up even a, a higher level. Mm-hmm. So I do exactly. understand that. Absolutely. Well, I, I have a question here for, for, for Judge Baird. I was um, read a few other articles, you know, talking about compensation and so forth, and some of the other states, um, I guess, in the articles were, was um, stating that you have to be uh, factually innocent, 100% factually innocent in order to be compensated. Can you explain that a little bit? I think there has to be some type of, of conclusive determination via DNA or otherwise that the individual who was convicted uh, is, in fact, innocent of the crime for which he was convicted or, or related crime. Uh, and that is typically done through DNA, although it has been done in Texas through uh, other situations as well, uh, through uh, faulty, uh, conf- false confessions and also through... Um, improper uh, misidentification uh, through faulty uh, identification processes, I should say, uh, like <laughs> suggestive lineups like was in Tim's case. So there has to be some type of, of uh, compelling proof that, in fact, the criminal justice system did get it wrong, and uh, that, that's what they're talking about there. And, and like I said, it's done by DNA, but not all of it. Okay. Right, right. And, and I will, I will say this, going back to, to Dallas County, Dallas County has been more forthcoming on, uh, uh, and, and, and when I say forthcoming, I mean they would, they would come forward and agree with the defendant that there had been a wrongful conviction that he should be exonerated, even in cases sometimes where the, the proof was not as compelling uh, as it might have been. For example, there, there could be an alibi that, that seems very substantial and, and kind of uh, a fail-safe or alibi, but yet the complaining witness still says, no, I, I'm sure that that was the person that sexually assaulted me. Even in cases such as that, the Dallas County DA's office has been, like I said, forthcoming and agreed that the case, the individual should be exonerated. exonerated. Okay. All right, so uh, I think, uh, Cliff, what we have, Sean on now? Yes. So joining us also uh, is Sean Session. And uh, Sean... How you doing, Sean? I'm doing well, and you? We're doing we're doing well. So, uh, Sean, you're one of Tim's brothers, uh, correct? Yes. So, uh, Sean, we wanted to, you know, uh, bring you on as well, and 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 kind of get some feedback from it as to uh, you know, the impact from your perspective. The impact from your sure. perspective. <laughs> Can you still hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. And, and, and so I, we, we're just trying to we're trying to figure out if that, if that background noise is in, on your. And so uh, it's on my end. It's my dog, and I'm going to make that stop right now. Okay. All right. All right. Well, tell you what, he looks excited. He wants to be on the air. All right. So, uh, Sean, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, from your perspective, the impact on on Tim's case on your family. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, it, I can I can sum that up uh, real quick. Uh, if you go back be, before uh, Kim was arrested, I had a sister who had uh, just gotten to law school. I had a a brother going uh, to the university out in Kansas. I had another brother, Reginald, at the time at, at Texas Tech, and another brother on his way to Knoxville College in Tennessee. If you fast forward after Timothy's uh, arrest and conviction, all of those guys were either dropped out of college except for my sister and had started going back and forth to the penitentiary. Wow. Hey, hey, son, let me let me ask you to do us a favor. If you can take care take care of uh, the, the little couple, and we'll come back yeah, to sure. you. And uh, and then so we'll continue to talk to Reginald and. Uh, and, and Judge Bayer until until you can get your uh, your situation squared away there. Uh, it kind of it kind of uh, uh, the sound kind of explodes a little bit uh, right, right. through through the phone system and then through the speakers and everything else. So uh, you know as far as so Reginald, let me let me come back to you. Uh, who, okay. You, you talked about your mother being a teacher and so forth, and um, so your mother passed away uh, recently. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. So I mean, and and that. When you look at all the things that your family has gone through, I mean, um, when when you think about, I mean, was she kind of like that pillar of strength uh, for the for the rest of the family as the family was going through this? Well, I'm gonna say this. Um, I remember uh, when during Sims trial, and I was there. He and I were there together. The first week, we got there on a Monday, and uh, mother got there on uh, Friday. So we had two beds, and we sat, we just, Tim and I just, you know, and I remember on the plane, and Tim, right before the plane took off, Tim said, uh, he said, Reggie, what if I don't come back home? And I'm like, he said, what if they convict me? I said, Tim, you got a round trip ticket, you come back home. And he looked at me, smiled. And uh, so anyway, mother got there, and, uh, we, we, my mother was there, and uh, we, the three of us had a bond that's unbreakable, you know, not just the three of us, my whole entire family. My mom was, I remember we were kids, and my mom was going to college, and uh, and Tim was her, Tim was her right hand, and uh, <laughs> Tim would get us up in the morning, he'd make breakfast for us. We'd all get dressed, we go to school, we come home, and Tim did everything mother without mother saying she knew he knew what she wanted done. And so anyway, um after his passing, I think I remember when she passed he passed, my mom said, you know, Tim was a sacrificial lamb. I'm like, What is mother talking about? But now I see now how um with the conversation to help these other people, these other uh, exonerees, and she was right. And she did everything she wanted to do. Uh, she, uh, she had these letters where Tim said, Mother, I want you to fix your house up. When I get out of here, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do this for you. And she did everything. I'm going to buy you a car. She got a new car. And I think she had the car about a month. And uh, but she was done. You know, she, the, the irony of um, Tim's conviction is the fact that 
they didn't know my mom. My mom, a strong woman, and mm. she was not going to lay down until Jim's name was clear. Mm-hmm. And I miss her dearly because, you know, I used to call my mom every day. Yeah. yeah. Every day. I call her every day. And uh, I, actually, I was on vacation all out of the country, and I came back. And on a Thursday, I believe, and the next day I was, uh, I got a call from Corey, and he told me to come up. And um, there's so many uh, things unsaid, but um, we, as a family, we are with the Sessions kids, and we are, she instills stuff in us to remember um, what we go through. Yeah. We still have that fighting, fighting spirit, no matter what we go right. through. Absolutely. You know, I'm, and I was um, looking at the um, the little clip that, that showed her standing um, there when Governor Rick Perry announced Tim's exoneration. And, mm-hmm. you know, just looking at her face and, and the fact that, you know, um, uh, this has finally happened. You know, it, it, it looked like it was just a relief, uh, uh, just mm-hmm. a big relief to her. Right. But she promised him that. And, um, yeah. And I remember um, the day that um, Tim was uh, convicted, uh, they asked him to rise up and stand up, and um, they found him guilty. Mm-hmm. Tim didn't just bawl and cry and just, oh, uh, no, he stood up and they allowed him to come back to the hotel room and then come back the next day for sentencing. So um, we walked out the courtroom. And I was hurt more, I mean, because I'm like, he's not showing any emotion. Mother showed no emotion. My sister Karen, she kind of did a little bit. And I said, if I show something, Tim might get mad at me and beat me up, so I'm not going to show it anyway. So anyway, we walked out the courtroom, he walked his head held high. Mm-hmm. And um, we got back to the hotel room, and our attorney, uh, Mike Brown, he got there and Tim opened the door, let mother go in first. And then um Mike Tim went out to mother's head and mother walked to the side of the room by the second bed. And uh Mike walked in and I stood at the door before I could come in. Now my mom was said my mom was a bilingual school teacher mm-hmm. when that was unheard of in the seventies and sixties in, in Texas. Mm-hmm. And what she would do was, while she was doing her her homework or studying for college, she got us a, a set of encyclopedias. So we would all be like, well, Mother, what is this? Mother, what is that? Most of us got your set of encyclopedias. Go look it up for yourself. So anyway, my mom always was probably the smartest person I know. And that day when um, Tim got convicted, Tim went in the room, stood up, and he ran in the corner to mother, and he got on his knees and cried. And he held her knees, and he said, Mother, why did you do this to me? He said, I didn't rape that girl. He said, I've never seen that girl before in my life. And for the first time in my life, my mom didn't have an answer for one of our questions. 
and that hurt me the most. Wow. Wow. Um, Judge Baird, um, as far as, you know, the, the exoneration, uh, it's our understanding that this is the first time in Texas history where an individual was, uh, was exonerated after they had passed. Yes. And, and so, you know, how, how, how big of a deal was that? I mean, it's obviously a significant uh, milestone in, in Texas uh, judicial history. Well, it it, um, it it was a I guess it was a big it was a big deal. Uh, it, it was a big deal in the sense that Governor Perry didn't know what to do with it. Uh, he and I don't mean that to be facetious. He he had to ask the Attorney General uh, of the state of Texas if he could pardon somebody uh, who was determined to be innocent uh, posthumously. And the Attorney General handed down an opinion and said, yes, says you can do it, and President Clinton and President Bush have also done it. And uh, so that, that's how the pardon came about, and, and that was actually the driving – I think that was actually the ultimate result that the uh, Cole Sessions family wanted so much, was that, that his name would be pardoned and there would be some type of declaration and proclamation by the governor that, that to restore his, his – uh, uh, reputation and and the, the the posthumous exoneration, uh, the court determination that we made, uh, of course, kind of fed that it and led that and allowed that to happen. Uh, I'd like to ask Reginald a question, and I've never asked this question before, uh, I, and I don't want to even say that I think I know the answer, but because I, I don't want to prejudge it. But Reginald, was the jury in Lubbock uh, all white? Yes, it was. And it was, yeah. you know, and when we when we were uh, picking a jury, and um, people think when you pick a jury, you pick the people you want. What you do is you pick the people you don't want. That's right. And the DA's office, and to this day, I've never heard of a a Craig Watkins ever trying a trial. That's what you have prosecutors for. The DA of Lubbock, Jim Bob Darnell, he tried the trial himself. And they only had maybe five black people come in there. And I'll never get this old this older black lady. And when they struck her from the jury, she walked by. She had a Bible in her hand. And she walked by us and said, God bless y'all. And that, I mean, it, hopefully those, the days of that are over, you know, uh, you you try and when you see it in the public, you know the public cries out of it's a television. But um, you know there's so many there's so many things that go on in courtrooms that are just held, uh, just kept behind closed doors. And um, Sean, you know we we got Reginald's side of the of, of the story, the impact that it had on him. We definitely don't want to don't want to leave you out. Uh, you know talking about about your family about. Your, brother that passed away about your mom and how she was a pillar of strength but she taught you guys uh as kids and, and uh you know adult men uh, if you would like to chime in. yes sir i, I couldn't hear that last bit 
No, I was just saying if you wanted to go ahead and make a comment about the impact that it had on you as far as your brother and uh, and how your your mother uh, always stood and uh, and was strong for you guys and 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 ensured that you stood for each other and that um you know even though that your your brother Tim had this uh, had this accusation against him that that you guys always held to the belief and knew the truth that that he never had committed this atrocious crime. Oh, absolutely. Well, we knew that from day one. We wasn't raised to be that kind of person. You know, I could have believed my brother murdered somebody before I believed he would rape somebody. But we knew that he wouldn't have done anything like that. And to be very, very honest, the biggest impact on all these things when he got arrested was the impact on him. He's the mm-hmm. one that went to penitentiary. He's the one that got into fights. He got hit in the head with a lock while he was in the penitentiary. Uh, and didn't want us to come down there and visit him much either. He said, you know, get on with your life, and there's, cause there's things that you can do that, that I can't do anything inside of here. But out of everybody, he's the only person that went through something because he's the one that went to the penitentiary. The rest of us, we it, it kind of fractured us a little bit because everybody, you know, kind of went to the four, four winds, and, 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 and not in a good way. I mean, in really bad drug abuse really bad uh, relationships didn't last anymore, no trust for the system whatsoever, uh, in and out of being incarcerated, and then prior to Tim getting locked up, no one had ever even been to the penitentiary. After, mm-hmm. Like I said uh, earlier, if, if you go back before his arrest, everybody in my family was already in, in, in a university or law school or in college, and there was only two of us left to go off, and that was uh, myself and Corey. Uh, and you fast forward past that, Everybody's dropped out of school and started, you know, going in and out of, you know, trouble with the law, and only one sibling graduated from college, and that was my sister, and from law school. It, it, it had a profound impact on us as siblings because he was the older one. He did give us a lot of advice and things of that nature, but that had a, a, a big-time impact on, on the younger siblings and the fact that uh, things that he would tell us not to do, we started doing. And you know, Cliff. But uh, uh, so far as my mother and father, uh, they truly believed he was going to be found not guilty because he didn't do anything. But my mom always held out hope that uh, that she would have a chance to see him get his name cleared. And and I heard y'all speaking of the photos you see her with the governor, Governor Perry. Uh, she was happy. She was elated because she she promised Tim that she would see that day come through. And, you know, Cliff, uh, you know, as Sean is talking, it kind of reminds you of the IRP-6 case, you know, and not just the IRP-6, but even other cases that we look at and the impact that incarceration has on the extended family. It's not just the person who is incarcerated, especially when a person is wrongly incarcerated. It's a major impact on them, just like uh, uh, Lamont was just saying as well. But the extended family, you have children that are involved, you have siblings that are involved, you have parents that are involved, you have friends that are involved. In the IRP-6 case, you got, you know, even an extended family through the church that right. all the guys went to. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, it, it's, people do not realize the impact that this uh, type of thing has on it. And then when you have a wrongful conviction, that just, you know, it has a trickle-down effect. Yeah, I mean, it, it can tear at the uh, at the very fabric of the family structure. I mean, uh, I know, uh, Sean, that you're saying, yeah, didn't really, you know, didn't really uh, do anything to anybody except him, but, you know, it it tore at the very foundation of, uh, of your family because, 
you know, if your parents raise you up to say, hey, the system is, is right, you, you don't break the law, and you can go on to be, you know, a viable society, and as long as you don't break the law, everything is, is good, and, and you don't have to worry about the law. But then you found sure. that the, the, the whole system failed you, your brother, your, your family, your parents, and like, like uh, Reginald said, gave put you in a position where the fir- for the first time in your life you saw your mother did not have an answer for you. And, and that, that is the thing that impacted you the most, that here's the person that has always had an answer, who's always told us what was right, who's always given us guidance and showed us when, when things go bad, this is how to do it as long as you're right. And she had no answer for you. And that is, um, you know, just like Sam was saying with the families of the IRP6, there are children involved. There there, uh, are young adults. And we have to continue to remind them that, you know, yeah, the system is broken. Do your part. Fight. Let your voice be heard. Vote to to get it fixed. You know, don't give up. Don't give up faith. Don't, Don't give up. But, you know, continue to fight. So, uh, and I know uh, we're going to go to a quick break, and so we're going to say thanks to uh, Reginald Kennard, uh, Sean Session, and Judge Charles Baird uh, regarding, as you spent uh, a little bit of time this evening, talking about the Tim Cole case. And what, on September 17th, I believe it is, uh, the city of Lubbock is going to unveil a 10-foot-tall bronze statue of Timothy Cole. It's called the Timothy Cole Memorial Statue. Uh, during a ceremony there, and then as we stated earlier, uh, there are there's the Tim Cole Compensation Act that's been passed uh, in the state of Texas as well. So, uh, Judge Bear, uh, do you have uh, a closing thought uh, that you'd like to share with uh, with the family? Uh, I, I do. I would like to share it with your your listeners. Uh, I, I would like for all of your listeners to hear one thing from an old trial judge here in Texas. If you get summoned for jury duty, show up and participate in the process. If, if Tim Cole had been tried by a jury of his peers that looked like Texas, that was racially diverse, I'm convinced he would not have died in prison. And today, for some reason, too many people that think like I do, I think right-thinking people, minorities, women, whatever, for whatever reason, don't show up for jury duty, and I wish everyone would show up for jury duty and fight like hell to get on that jury and to see that justice is done when they're there. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Judge thank Barrett. You. Uh, and, and, again, thank you for the stand that you took in the uh, Timothy Cole case to, to just hear how you stepped in and, and, uh, and uh, your role that you played in getting Tim's name cleared. And, again, thanks to Reginald Kennard and Sean Session. Uh, folks will be able to listen to the archive of this uh, interview on AJCRadio.com. Again, that's AJCRadio.com. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Each week, a Just Cause Coast to Coast shares compelling stories about judicial injustice. But AJC doesn't leave it there. AJC Radio presents top guests from across the country who are advocates, activists, attorneys, and judges who provide insight into current events and the law. If you believe in what AJC is doing, we ask that you make a donation of any amount. 
Your kindness will be greatly appreciated. Go to www.a-justcause.com and click on the donate button. Again, please go to www.a-justcause.com and click on the donate button. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dolphin. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Jared Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. Today, innocent Americans are standing trial for crimes they didn't commit. Today, innocent Americans are writing for help from a prison cell. Today, hundreds of Americans have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. Researchers believe that at least 40,000 innocent Americans still sit behind bars. For them, the answers do not come easy. A just cause seeks true balance and accountability in the judicial process, ensuring that innocent men and women are not convicted and sentenced to prison for trivial, obscure acts that are otherwise not seen as crimes. For more information on how a just cause may help you or how you can get involved to stop over-criminalization of innocent Americans, visit www.a-justcause.com or call 855-529-4252. That's 855-529-4252. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. You know, uh, Cliff, during the break, we were talking about, you know, some of the things that went uh, on in the Tim Cole case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even just listening to that case and listening to Judge Baird and and Reginald and, and Sean, uh, and and we're, as Sean was talking about the impact on the families, and and uh, and then early on where the judge was talking about, uh, you know, judges and prosecutors not wanting to take the case, you know, you have to think about the fact, like we've talked before, people want to win, uh, you know, at any cost, at any cost. And, and it boils down to just like families are impacted, like we talked about the IRP six, you got children that are impacted, spouses that are impacted, parents and so forth. Uh, these these crooked prosecutors and crooked judges, they have to be held accountable. And and then when you look at the compensation situation, and as Lamont was saying uh, earlier, and Lamont's going to jump in here, uh, uh, Lamont Banks, our special contributor, uh, going to jump in on this conversation about the uh, restitution. Um, like like you guys were saying earlier, there is no price tag that can be put placed on a person's life when they are subjected to you know things um, as a result of a wrongful conviction. Well, that's. Uh, Sam, that's how you know that there is a disconnect uh, and a lack of reality in the minds of people in regarding uh, this process, in regards to this process. If anybody can sit in an office and say, what what shall the compensation be Mm -hmm. for the people who sit behind bars wrongfully? And they hadn't been there. And they have not been there. They are not 
connected. Mm -hmm. They are disconnected from the reality and the horrors of prison. Mm -hmm. And I think you made a good point in regards to uh, the family, the suffering of a wife Mm -hmm. being separated from her husband. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you know, you look at the RP6 uh, case here. I mean, you got men who we're not talking about, you know, some fly by night marriages. We're talking about marriages that are established on the foundation mm-hmm. of love and, and, and care. And how when you rip a husband from uh, his wife's bed or you rip a father from his from his child's arms, how can you possibly with that in your mind, think that any compensation exactly. will, do, will fix the job? It's not it's just not going to happen. Well, you know, Lamont, it goes to that, the, the adage, out of, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and so the folks who are looking at these types of situations with regard to restitution and, and, and even folks who do not get involved, like Judge Barrett said, you know, go on, go do your, uh, your duty as far as jury duty. I mean, is it a pain? Absolutely. But it, it could make the difference between uh, a person being wrongly convicted and a person you know, walking out of there with their family. I, and, you know, Lamont, I go back to when we interviewed you uh, in, on one of our segments, and you were uh, profiled as far as the profile of the wrongly convicted. And you brought up the issue, and it has never left my mind, that when you and your attorney walked into the jury room for jury selection and your attorney asked the question, how many people in this room, and I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, there were sure. like 60 people in there, and, and your attorney asked, how many people in this room believe that because Mr. Banks is sitting in the defendant chair, he did something wrong? And every person stood up. Mm. Every single person. That's amazing. And that, and, and that to me, uh, the process has failed. Yeah, where do you, how, do, how could you, by any stretch of the imagination, get a fair trial when just because you show up and you're sitting in the defendant chair, you're automatically guilty. Where is where is the presumption of innocence? You well, know, that, that, but that went out the window a long time ago. Yeah, the presumption yeah. of innocence the presum- is a joke. The sad part, I think, about that, Cliff, is, as, as you comment there, I think the sad part is is that uh, to sit in a chair, and the judge came back and made the statement and said, you have not heard one ounce of evidence. This man has been accused of something. You have seen not one. Nothing. Uh, shred of evidence you've heard not one testimony but you believe because this man is in this chair he is guilty that is the brainwashing effect of a messed up society and you know that is exactly what happened in the IRP 6 case because they had absolutely no evidence to show that the IRP 6 were guilty of anything that's right nothing whatsoever and you had a jury that came back and convicted them and, you know, I, I have to, I guess I'll add uh, to something that Judge Baird said as far as, you know, if you are called to do jury duty, do your duty because it could make a difference. Yes. But when you look at Lamont's situation, I would say, yeah, go to jury duty, mm-hmm. but keep an open mind. You and, know, and do not, not, only that, do not show up and just say yeah. that this per- you know, I'm, I'm going to have a, a preconceived notion that this person is guilty. Exactly. And not only that, Sam, when you have been notified, of, of, of being selected as a juror. Do some research. Find out what your job as a juror is. Yep. You know, what you can do, what you cannot do, what, what, you know, find out as much about being a juror as you can possibly find out before you go there and just let somebody tell you some crap well, that, you know. Well, could, here's the impact I thought on mm-hmm. that. And maybe if the listeners can really pay attention to this, it takes one juror. 
mm-hmm. could be that juror who goes into that courtroom and says, you know what, I'm going to stand on what I believe. Absolutely. One person. You say, well, I don't know how to change the system. Do your job. Do your job. That's right. That's tell it. The, Do your tell job. the truth. That's if, it. If everybody that went to jury duty would stick to their their uh, moral uh, conviction, yes, their moral conviction. If they would say there's no evidence on this person, we hear more often than not when we were uh, out of town last week and we sat at the table. Uh, with a group of people, and we we're telling them about the IRP6 mm-hmm. story. And one of these women said, you know, uh, she had to go to jury duty. Mm-hmm. And she was so scared because, yes. you know, uh, she didn't know if they if they didn't have have evidence, would she be willing to to you know basically be the black sheep per se and and say no, I'm going to stick to my moral conviction. If you don't have evidence this person is not guilty, then exactly. I am not going to come back and say that they're guilty. And, and you know, it's it's sad that people just say, okay, I'm just going to go along with yeah, the crowd. Yeah, they just fold. And, and you know, we, we, we talked to her and said, no, you have to maintain yes. your conviction. You have to continue uh, your stance. You cannot go in there and just because everybody else says this person is guilty – that you say that that they're uh, that they're that they're that they're guilty. Yeah, it's absolutely. just the cliff. You, you know what? You know what's amazing about that is, and this is where it goes back to the judges. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the listeners are aware of this. In a case that is so, uh, to me, clear with the mm-hmm. RP6 case, these other cases mm-hmm. that we're talking about, mm-hmm. the judge has the power. Oh yeah. In a moment, when a jury conviction comes back, he can say to that jury, based upon. Me as a judge, Mm -hmm. and what I've observed in this courtroom, Mm -hmm. I set aside the conviction of this jury. The decision of this jury can be set aside by a judge. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. judge has, that's what I'm saying, it has failed from the time a person is arrested all the way to the top. The system has failed. Let me share a quick statistic, and then I think we've got to call it Cliff, but let me share a quick uh, statistic, and, and, and it uh, made me look this up after what Sean has said. And, and, and you know, and we all know, like we, just, we were just saying, as far as the impact on the families and mm-hmm, so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a little dated, but the point still stands, and this is actually from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And it says that, you know, when a loved one is sentenced to prison, the emotional turmoil is difficult for everyone uh, to handle. Perhaps the heaviest burden is felt by those who are unintentional victims of, of uh, crime, children of incarcerated parents. At the time that this was published, it said that there were seven, 7.3 million children uh, have at least one parent in jail or prison. Here's the kicker. Sadly, 70% of these kids are doomed to follow in the footsteps of their parents because of the fact that they're left to fend for themselves. I mean, the parents are taken away. It talks about uh, in the Texas uh, uh, criminal justice system at the time that this was published, it said there were over 156,000 prisoners in the state. 57,000, almost 58,000 were black, Mm -hmm. the highest of any other ethnicity. Women constituted 12,000 of those total in prison. So when your mother and or your father is taken away and you're left for your grandmother or your brother or your aunt or your uncle or protective services to take care of you, Mm -hmm. you have no clear direction. And it's saying here that these kids, 70% of them are doomed to go uh, to prison. Sean just uh, confirmed that. He said all of them were in school. All of them were in college. That's right. A, a, a um, A key person in their family. 
snatched away from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They ended up, you know, going uh, the way of, of, you know, down the path that would send them to jail. Exactly. So let's take that qual- caller real quick. We have, uh, what, a minute or so? We get yeah. a couple of minutes. Uh, we have uh, Diana from Texas. Diana, you have a question for us. Yes, sir, I do. I was uh, listening to what he was saying, that question they put out, uh, because this person is sitting here, do you believe he's doing something, he's done something wrong? I am wondering, why is that question allowed? It, I mean, knowing that that would, what is it, when you say you taint the jury, right. knowing that that would do that, and, and if you have an attorney that won't even, uh, I guess, play something else other than why is he here, because he did something. That well, stays with the jury. Well, I think, okay. and, I th- and uh, thank, thanks for your question, Diana. Uh, and Diana, what I what I think my attorney was uh, making an attempt to prove is that the, I believe the the flaws in the system mm-hmm. uh, that it, it it did actually prompt the judge to do individual uh, interviews with the with every jury in that room prior to the jury selection, and he was dr- and th- those people were drilled with questions. Uh, by the judge individually, he called them in one by one into the courtroom and and told them, "Do you understand that Mr. Banks is not guilty of anything?" I mean, he we we delayed the process. He delayed the process to make sure that the people knew exactly who may not have been uh, knowledgeable as far as the law and those things are concerned to pound into their minds, mm-hmm. "Mr. Banks is guilty of nothing," Absolutely. and you need to know that. And some were excused. He had the power at that moment to say, you, we, your services will no longer be needed. Those that he talked to that said, oh, I get it, mm-hmm. they were allowed to stay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and you, go ahead, Ethel. No, no, no. I just wanted to make reference to something because you were talking about children of uh, incarcerated parents. Yeah. And someone had sent me an email today talking about there's going to be a briefing on the Hill on prioritizing the needs of children of incarcerated parents in the United States. Uh, September 3rd, 11 to 1230, uh, Rayburn House Building in Washington, D.C. And so I sent out an email and addressing that and asking them, what about um, the, the children of people who have been wrongfully convicted? You know, are, is, is that going to be part of the discussion? So I have not received a response back to that as yet, but that is something that I want to know. You know, not, you know I, we understand that this is affecting children you know, whether they, their parents are, are, are wrongfully convicted or whether they did the crime, you know, it affects these it kids affects all children. the way around. Yeah. You know, so this is what I, I, I am asking this question. You know, is it, is it only the, the parents who have been convicted of a crime or is this for parents, period, wrongfully convicted right. or convicted? And, and, and uh, I want to jump back to something that Lamont was talking about as well and, and to kind of uh, bridge off of Diana's question. Uh, with regard to what the jury thinks and, and, you know, what is set in their mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when you look at the IRP-6 case, you know, it's a situation where, again, Judge Arguello did not do anything as far as giving the IRP-6 the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. And when it came to the jury, you know, it was, you know, as far as the character of the men. And, uh, uh, you know, these, like we, we talked about them being upstanding men, exactly. ethical businessmen, mm-hmm. they're Christian men, they're mm-hmm. family men. And when they, you know, wanted to share, here who, here's, you know, this is me. This is me. This is, Mm -hmm. I'm Gary Walker. Mm -hmm. I'm David Banks. Mm -hmm. I'm Dave Zappolo. I'm Kendrick Barnes. I'm Clinton Stewart. I'm Demetrius Harper. Mm -hmm. This is me, the person. Matthew Kirsch and Judge Arguello uh, made stupid comments that, uh, and saying that your character is not on trial here. Really? You are calling me a criminal. Exactly. 
And you don't want me to convey to the, to the jury who I really am, who this person is that's standing before you? Our system is messed up. And in this case, it was, it's really messed up. That's why we're going to continue to fight for it. We ask that you go out to freetheirp6.org and uh, look up information about the IRP6 case. We are continuing to fight it. Uh, go out to a-justcause.com, a-justcause.com, and find out even more information about a just cause and some of the things that we do uh, with regard to fighting uh, against uh, injustice and, and helping to bring light to cases Absolutely. just like the IRP6 case. We ask you to go to ajcradio.com. Uh, where you can get archives of our weekly program. Also on Live365.com for 24 by 7 AJC and IRP programming. On Sunday mornings from 10.30 a.m. to to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, you can also catch us on Progressive Radio Network. You can get there by going to prn.fm. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, You won't be disappointed as far as that goes. Go to change.org. Do a search on IRP6. And uh, we ask that you sign that petition. We, uh, Cliff and I were talking uh, quite extensively earlier about the over 200 pages that uh, Judge Christine Arguello uh, denied uh, the, the IRP6. And within those 200 pages lies the sidebar conference where she violated the Fifth Amendment right of the IRP6. And that's the key component that we're looking for. Ethel, as far as uh, the Attorney General, what else are we asking folks oh, to do? Oh, yes. We are asking people to call Attorney General Eric Holder's office at 202-514-2003 and 2005. Ask him to investigate where the over 200 pages of missing trial transcripts are in the case of the IRP-6. These men have been sitting in prison for over two years. We need them home. Where is the transcript? That's right. That's right. We want to say thank you to all of our guests, to Judge Charles Baird, Reginald Kennard, and Sean Sessions, and the rest of the family of Tim, Tim Cole. Our prayers uh, go out to you guys and your family. I want to say thanks to everybody in the chat room for uh, all of your comments. Uh, thanks to everybody who called in with questions and comments. We appreciate it. Also, to our production team, K&D Productions, Captain Kyle, Dustin Jackson, helping out the skills grow in the control room. They are the ones who ensure that you hear what we have to say to our production support team. They give us the information that we give to you to ensure that we have the most current and up-to-date information so that we can give you the education that you need uh, as far as the judicial system. To the truth, you know you're out there. We appreciate it. We'd also like to say go out to our website, again, a-justcause.com, a-justcause.com, and click on the button that gives information about supporting the Justice for All Act. That is an act, uh, Justice for All Reauthorization Act, sponsored by Senator Patrick Leahy. It reauthorizes for things like DNA testing, you know, where there's a backlog of DNA testing. This kind of thing helps to, uh, to, to provide funding. Cliff. Yes, and to the jurors that are out there that are part of the IRP6 case, we know that with everything you're hearing on uh, Just Cause Radio, got to have questions about some of the other actions of uh, Judge Christine Arguello and the goings-on in this trial. Uh, We have um, information that you may not, anything that we have is open to you. All of the information, we'll give it to you if you reach out to us. You can call us at 855-529-4252. Again, that's 855-529-4252. Or send us an email at contact at a-justcause.com. And for more information uh, about the over 200 pages of transcript, Judge H. Lee Sarakin has a four-part series out on the Huffington Post 
And so we ask that you go out there and read that as well. I want to give a shout-out to Howell Waltz in uh, our support for the ombudsmannow.com. Again, that's ombudsmannow.com. Join us each week, Tuesday and Thursday, right here on the Just Cause Coast to Coast from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time as we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice on behalf of Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks. Good night, America. Good night, y'all. Good night. <laughs>